This episode of No Quarter is sponsored by the Underground Retrocade. You love these games, and the way you want to play them is on the original cabinets. You want to see the side art, you want to feel the controls, and you want to hear the Smiths on the stereo. So when you're in the Chicago area and you want to play arcade games and you're saying to yourself, please, please, please let me get what I want, where should you go? The Underground Retrocade. And when should you go? Hey, how soon is now? Head over to 121 West Main Street, West Dundee, Illinois. Few have attained the treasure of Mytha. For that small handful who outwit Mytha and his cunning army, the dwellers of the dark, for the elite core, goes a special place in cubic history. Enter the cube. Survive the unthinkable. I'm Mike McGinnis. And I'm Carrington Vanston. And you're listening to No Quarter, the classic video arcade game podcast. That's one of my favorites. Mine too. (laughs) We like us. So Mike, how are you? How are things in the land of Mike? Things are cold, Carrington. Oh, they're cold here too. Yeah, it's it's cooled off again. We had a nice little warm snap for a while and then it got cold. And I guess the local professional football franchise is winning games or something that I don't care about. (laughs) <laughs> How are things in Toronto? Cold. We also yeah. don't care about football. And it's cold. It's cold, cold. Oh, so darn cold. I don't like it. It's un-Canadian of me, but I don't care. I don't like it. But the cold weather means he can just stay indoors and play video games. So that's one of the good things about it. I'm really all for that. People also stayed indoors and sent us email and those tweet things the cool kids are doing and the Facebookery. Now, why on earth would they do that? Because they write to us and then we read it online or on air or whatever this was. Whatever this is, read this into the MP3. <laughs> and it's all part of the great circle of arcade life. So tell me, Carrington, what did they write us? We got some neat stuff. Let's see. Oh, we got a good email from Sean, Sean Courtney, the missing Gorf rank of Space Cowboy. It starts off with. He goes back a bit 
and sort of takes us to task a little bit about the Pac-Man Fever album. He says, like, what? as he's listening, he's listening to our our episodes, and he's been going back and listening to the album, and he says he finds that these songs are actually pretty darn good, and he's kind of upset at us for saying why are they so crappy. I didn't think we thought they were crappy. <laughs> I'm misremembering. I thought I yeah, liked it. Yeah, I thought I did too. I thought the songs were cheesy and kind of silly. And if you played them over and over, they got annoying. And if I said anything different on a previous podcast, I'm denying it right now. I'm pretty sure I said I didn't like them at first. And then in a future episode, I came back and said, okay, I've got to admit, I, I keep listening to it. And it, <laughs> it kind of has me hooked. Because I do. And I, and I do actually keep coming back to it. And yeah, super cheesy. But super cheesy in an 80s way. And that's kind of my sort of cheesy. I had the LP... Uh, way back when, when it was first released, and I recently bought another one because I lost it. Well, you bought the LP? Like, as a, as a vinyl record? Like, those huge black CDs? Yes, one of those. My goodness. Mm, I tried to shove that in my CD player, and it just didn't work. <laughs> you fold it up. Um, so you have a record player? I do, yep. I'm, You're such a old, hipster. My... <laughs> no, this is my dad's old record player. <laughs> Your dad was a hipster. Before <laughs> hipsters were cool. <laughs> yep, He's like the, the ultimate 70s. hipster. As dads often are. Yes, so I, I'm a fan of, of Buckner and Garcia. I prefer, I think, Arcade and the Victims. The, the music is more polished or technically better, but... And you're a hipster, so you've <laughs> got to like the thing no one else has heard of. Pac-Man Fever is, is more fun. How's that? Pac-Man Fever is fun. And I do think I was probably down on it at first. I don't know. It has grown on me, though. I got to admit, I'll admit here and now, I dig it. And I listen to it. I listen to it when I'm not even playing arcade games. That's just how it is. Anyway, at the end of his email, also, though, answered one of our questions. Like he says in, in the subject here, but this whole, uh, when we were talking last I didn't say last issue. Sure. Why not? We could print these out. Last episode. Which is also available in print. (laughs) Yes. Mike will be transcribing it for our (laughs) listeners. Uh, So we're talking about the the different space ranks you can be. And uh, I said, well, what about Space Cowboy? Like, what if I'm the Pompatus of Love or something like that? I wondered, what the heck does Pompatus mean? Well, he solved that problem for me. He said, well, if you're interested, I got to go read the Straight Dope. And I love the Straight Dope site. And he says, you know, it's an awesome column slash series of books in which questions of all kinds are answered. Yes, I'm a big, big fan of the Straight Dope. I should have thought to look there, actually. And it turns out that it's just like Steve Miller word inside the Steve Miller canon. And that whole beginning of that song is just sort of calling back to earlier, earlier Steve Miller songs. I see. I'm actually a little disappointed in the answer, to be honest. That's not very interesting. Sean says that we can call him Maurice. And I, and I was thinking, woo, woo, because <laughs> I got this song in my head now. I think we should just ban him for questioning our love of Buckner and Garcia. <laughs> anyway, we also got email from Mike, Mike in SoCal. And he has an idea for us. And I think it's a fantastic idea. In fact, it was so good, I almost was going to say, let's not say it because other people will do it. But you know what? Other people can do it too. It'll be a big fun thing. It's titled World Record, and that's sort of a hint on what his suggestion for you and Uh-oh. me, Mike, is. No, it's a good one. Mike is a devious and wonderful thinker. Well, because we're not getting world records in anything that's been played before. Oh, but that's that's the twist. That's the, that's the, the subtle genius that is Mike in SoCal. He writes, big fan of the show. I've been listening for a while, and I owe you some positive feedback. Yes, you do, Mike. Um, he says, but I've been lazy. What got me to write was a great idea you touched on in the Macho Mouse podcast. You two should pick a game or a few games that no one plays anymore and practice 
practice to beat the world record. Forget the guy who, who plays the emulated games. Quietly search for a PCB to buy or maybe get a jam adapter for it so you can do it on the original hardware. And the greatest would be if you, like, after spending months of practicing and consistently beating the current world record, could meet somewhere and compete, recording it for a world record. And the whole thing could be filmed and released as a documentary. The King of Crap, the quest to be the best at the world's plastic <laughs> arcade games. But I just, uh, the worst classic arcade games. I love the idea of trying to I'm be in. the yep. very very best at the very worst games because they'll have the lowest bar to get the world record yep where do i sign up totally fantastic idea he said it could be a great youtube video i just like i like the whole idea so I've, i'm actually going to take this to heart i think this is something maybe we should actually try to do because it's a wonderful idea great suggestion mike what else did we get well i guess the last one in email i want to bring up is we got a nice short email with a link in it from someone named jeff just saying, great show, guys. Here's a neat Gorf link. Jeff is a man of few words. And the neat Gorf link he sent us was a YouTube video called Gorf Programming Speech Demo. And i got to have a link to this in the show notes because it's awesome. So this is guy who somehow is able to program his Gorf machine. I had assumed that all the Gorfness, all the Gorf talk was just pre-recorded little snippets that just got played. Like they'd be waves or something. And it seems that you can actually program a Gorf machine to say other things. And so he's got his Gorf just <laughs> oh, saying no. lots of famous other game phrases and things out of movies and a whole bunch of stuff. And it's crazy awesome. So I will have a link to that in the show notes. Did we get other stuff? Did we get stuff on like Facebook or so? I think we got things. We're kind of late in a rushed recording. So a little less uh, polished than usual. I think. <laughs> What a surprise. As if we're ever really polished. That's how we roll, man. Let's see, what do we oh, have Scott here? Oh, Scott sent us a uh, thing. Scott Didn't he get a picture? Yeah. Yeah, Scott Lambert, our, our sponsor. Mm -hmm. We like Scott. He posted a picture of the flight stick that's on Gorf. Because, Carrington, last week you'd mentioned that the designer's name was visible in the pixels, the little red pixels somehow. Something like that, or his initials, or something, right? Scott says, uh, here's a close-up of the flight stick. Insert in our cab. It's, it's cracked, but you can still see the pixels very easily. Can make out an E and a Z in the pixels, but a name doesn't seem to quickly present itself to my eye, and neither to mine. I don't, mm -hmm. well, I don't see anything in that, but... Maybe that means it's, it's a fake one. Scott got taken. <laughs> 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 Wait, look at it closely. That's not Gorf. <laughs> That's Zaxxon. <laughs> totally wrong game. I, I think it was supposed to be his... You know what? I'm going to have to go back and listen to our own show. <laughs> I think it was supposed <laughs> to be the guy's whole name. But looking at the picture, you're right. I can't really make out a name here. And since it's all a bunch of dots, it'd be kind of easy to see. Yeah, I can kind of see that that could be an E or that bit could be an R. But it's just a bunch of dots, so I can kind of impose almost anything on there other than the name Carrington. Hmm. All right. Well, let's talk about this week's game. Because this week's game is weird. And crazy and awesome and fun. This week's game is a game on drugs, man. <laughs> it is. We play Cube Quest. Yes, that's what it's called. Cube Quest. Now, here's the thing. I know that we've got some hardcore listeners and all the people over at Atari Age roll their eyes every time I talk about a game because I don't really know what I'm talking about. And you know what? They should roll their eyes because I don't know what I'm talking about. But we also have listeners that are like us, just casual players who like games, played them back in the day and are sort of coming back to a lot of these things. And I think there's got to be a number of people listening to this episode who are like in the same position that I'm in, where I'd never heard of this game before this cube quest thing it didn't ring a bell i'd never seen it i've never seen the, the machine so what about you mike were you familiar with this game before this week? not at all nope never heard of it never seen it because once i started reading about it other people talk about it and it's you know one of the the names i guess 
in Laserdisc games. Of course, there's only so many of those, but this completely was new to me. And also, I don't think I've ever played a game quite like this before, although it has a lot of similarities to other games. We can talk about that. But the actual like playing experience was quite a unique one. This was a game that was released in late 1983 by Simutrek? I'm going to go with Simutrek. Okay. I think it's the only game they ever did. And so it's basically a an over-the-shoulder space shooter, not unlike Buck Rogers, actually, because from the, the angle and what really happens in the gameplay. The difference is that this the laser disc is used to provide the ambient new agey music that goes on and the the trippy, weird, and completely awesome, cool graphics that happen in the background. Now, I hope you underlined the word trippy in the transcription of this episode that you're going to do. Several times, yes. Trippy is the perfect word for it. This is a game absolutely on drugs because you're flying down these corridors, almost endless corridors, and the, the images wrap around the tunnel that you're, you're diving down. And those images aren't just shapes. Sometimes they're rotating gears. Sometimes they're flowers. There's, there's just one corridor I went down that was a corridor of snakes. It's like, the free, it's like <laughs> oh, suddenly I'm on the bad trip. I mean, this game is so psychedelic and so bizarre looking. It is completely different looking than any game I'd played before. Those backgrounds are mind-blowing. Very strange. And we'll talk more about the music in, the minute, in a minute. But the music didn't fit what you would normally associate with a space shooter. I agree completely. It's, it's not the pounding adrenaline, you know, trying to get your heart rate up. It's very relaxing and sort of nebulous and not really, there's not really a strong melody or anything. It's very strange. Yep. Uh, So the game starts and you're looking at this wireframe map of a cube. There are four parts per side. And the idea is that you choose a heading and you fly through the corridors on the edge of this cube to the next area. And And it's like a wireframe Rubik's Cube is basically what it is. Yeah, and you're going around the edges to the the vertices. There are 54 in total, and you have to go through all of them. And the final one, there's this... Wait, are there 54? There are 54. Uh, Oh, because the lines... You know what? Yes, 54. I was like, no, there'd be 72. But I would be... Yeah, okay. I had to do quick math in my head there. Okay, (laughs) I agree with you. 54. Nicely done. I see. (laughs) And then you reach the treasure of of Mytha or Mytha, or you run out of ships, whichever happens first. (laughs) I'll tell you which one happens to me. (laughs) Treasure. Oh, there's a treasure? How interesting. And as you're flying down the corridor, not in the area where you select, obviously, your your next vector, as you're flying down the corridor, that's when you're attacked by various things. And I'll call them things because there are so many real-world like objects in them that I don't know what to think. According to EraseWars.net article on this, there's pinwheels, tulips, dragonflies, flying fish, Western sheriff's badges, biplanes, little red helicopters, you name it, they threw it in this game. It's bizarre. Like, yeah, all the enemy ships are just shaped like random stuff. And so, and every now and then you'll get a, a bonus ship and you'll hear that, you'll hear a kind of a low siren that goes off and that's an extra thousand points. Regular enemies get you two or 300 points depending on how close you are when you blow them up. As you get back to the wireframe map, you'll see several red cubes. They have these purple wings on them. These are the guardian cubes, and the guardians are they travel across the cubes to come block your path. So if you head if you head into one of their corridors, that's like a boss fight. Exactly. So you'll go down and do the normal corridor fight, and then you'll also have this weird boss thing kind of where you're there's actually like a cube you're battling it's all very strange you have to blow out the walls of the cube before it can get rebuilt and and you can shoot the little walls while they're down at the bottom spinning around but when they come up 
up the corridor walls at you. You can no longer shoot them. You have to just sort of avoid them. And there's a lot of that in this game. There's a lot of actually avoiding because you're flying down through things that are coming up at you. So a lot of times you can shoot stuff, but a lot of times it's walls or there's that one thing after the corridor, you'll go through the, the shapes or like these rotating chairs in space and they rotate at you and you have to fly through the holes and sort of make a time, time it so you're not going to hit anything solid. It's It's got a bit of variety to it, although it is sort of repetitive as well, I found. But at least... Like the backgrounds, there's lots of different backgrounds and they really do hold your interest visually. Like at no point this week was I, was I getting bored with the look of this game. Yes. And in fact, those, those backgrounds were actually designed by a different company. They were produced by Robert Abel and Associates. I've heard of them. They did movie stuff, I think. They did. And the backgrounds were later used in something called Beyond the Mind's Eye. The game itself was designed and programmed by Paul Allen Newell. Not Paul Newell. So I know Paul Newell because he's like the big artificial intelligence guy from the 1950s. And he made mm-hmm. that logic theorist software. He's the heuristics guy. I mean, he didn't invent it. That's a math thing. But he brought it to AI and the whole trim the branches idea. Like all of that is Paul Newell. And a lot of people who write about CubeQuest put in little biographies of the guy who who makes it this Paul Allen Newell, but they clearly just do a Google search, get Paul Newell stuff. And so all the time they'll say like the person who did this game was the fellow who created logic theorists. I'm like, uh, no, 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 he wasn't. It's not the fellow who got the, the Nobel prize earlier and stuff. So yes, it's Paul Allen Newell, who is somebody I actually don't know. I know the other Newell. Well, Paul Allen Newell, it looks like designed a number of games. I'm reading from an interview on uh, digitpress.com. He's a BA in art and communication art with a focus on video and film. So it makes sense that he would design a game that would have all these trippy, wonderful images and would Mm -hmm. rely on visuals rather than strong gameplay. Because I I love this game, but like you said, it was kind of repetitive after a while. Yeah, I was reading an interview with him as well. This is the game... A bunch of people got together, including him, to make this company and to make this game. And this was the game that was going to launch the company. And they sort of just ran out of time. They had to get it into a, like a gaming expo where you show it off. Like we talked about that in an earlier episode, how arcades were a very seasonal business. There'd be like that time in October or whatever. And you'd have to be in the show to be able to get your orders to sell the game. So everything had to get done by then. They had to get this game into a position where they could display it and try to get sales in October of 1983, and the game really wasn't done. They were going to need another three or six months, but there wasn't the money there. They had to begin a revenue stream. They just had to finish up the game as quickly as they could and put it out there and just start selling it. And even he, as a as the designer, was saying he's got to take the blame on himself a little bit there because he should have owned up earlier when he realized there wasn't going to be enough time. He considers it kind of not a finished game. There wasn't enough put into the gameplay. That part's not complete because it was very new technology, both the laser to stuff and also the, the actual PCB, like working with the computer stuff, the, the actual computer graphics, which aren't vector graphics, but have that sort of feel to them. They're, they're raster graphics that have that vector feel. They're just polygons. But the gameplay mechanics, I, th- I think, well, I think the mechanics actually really good. And we'll talk a bit about the control and the control. That's slick and fantastic. And I absolutely love it. This is amazing trackball control. But the actual game itself this is almost like an amazing demo for a game. And I can see how somebody could have taken this and then added more elements or plotted out, but I would have thought you'd kind of come up with those plans before you start programming. <laughs> but the visuals, particularly those laser disc visuals are amazing. And those are well polished. I don't think anything could be approved there other than the fact that it makes you feel like you're on drugs when you play this thing. But the game itself is a little unpolished. 
Although I really enjoyed playing it because it's so different and it's so slick and it's interesting. This wasn't his only game. Paul Allen Newell also designed Towering Inferno for the VCS. And uh, it looks like Scramble for the Vectrex platform. Very cool. I can see him having that Vectrex background because even though this isn't a vector game, like I was just saying, it's, it's, it's a polygon game and it's got that 3D in the way that vector games have them, except the, the sides are sort of filled in. And that whole cube you're on is, of course, vector looking as well because it's just a wireframe. It's funny how that the opening scene where it talks about how, you know, after the year 2007, 2007. <laughs> where was that great war of the planets or something, they go and they discover this cube. And there's this interesting line and it goes something like, you've played on the cube, but can you play in the cube? Or we've all played on the cube, and now can you dare to play in the cube? Or something like that. And I kept thinking, I don't understand. What do you mean we've all played on the cube? I don't get that with the beans. But then it finally hit me. We're dealing with 1983. Everybody would have been playing Rubik's Cube stuff. And so it's not a line that would have appeared weird to a contemporary. When you look at this wireframe, you immediately think Rubik's Cube, especially if you're 1983, and you say, oh, we've all played on the cube. Yeah, of course they have. Like, everyone's played this whole twisting cube idea. And so the line wouldn't have struck somebody in 1983 as weird as it struck me now in 2014. I'm like, what do you mean we've played on the cube? What was that a previous game? So it's kind of strange. We haven't talked about how you can rotate the cube because you can. And that's kind of neat. Tell me how to rotate the cube. There's a button. There's one big button. <laughs> this is a game played with a trackball and fire buttons on either side and then the rotate button. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about the cabinet, but the mechanic here is when you're on that cube and you're, you're at a vertex and the enemies are elsewhere on these lines and you're trying to figure out, well, which corridor do I want to go down? Every time you're viewing that, you have one chance, if you want, to rotate one of the slices of the cube that you're on, but you can't control the direction of that rotation. So maybe it'll rotate you nearer your goal and will be of benefit. Maybe it will rotate you away from it and right into the middle of enemies. Like who knows what? It seems to be at random. So it's a dangerous mechanic to use, but at least it's that one other thing. If you do find yourself on the cube, you're surrounded by the bad guys, you've sort of got nothing to lose, you might as well just rotate it and see what happens. And I like that element because the whole rotating Rubik's Cube in. Uh, I'm reading, still reading the interview here from Paul Allen Newell, and he talks about, he tells the story about Cube Quest, and basically in the end he considers it a failure and it ended his career in games, actually. Oh. Uh, he says, uh, I've seen email threads about the holy grail of finding a Cube Quest game, and we'll obviously talk about that during when you tell us about the cabinet, but he said, all I can say is that the game isn't, just isn't worth all the interest. The hardware was slick and the laser imagery was state-of-the-art at the time, but all in all we failed. As a game designer and lead programmer, I take the bulk of responsibility for that failure. I underestimated the task and didn't have the courage to tell management that we were doomed when I realized it myself. That pretty much ended my career in games. Well, that's a shame. It is, because I didn't really think this game was that awful. No, um, not at all. But I can see how this would have had trouble, though. I mean, this is 1983. By middle of 83, everyone's talking about Laserdisc games. They're going to save the industry. It's the new excitement. It's going to be so awesome. And by the middle of 1984, they're all gone and the whole idea is dead. Right? So it wouldn't all be his fault. I mean, look at all the problems that all the Laserdisc games had. Like this whole idea of using a Laserdisc, that crazy expensive component that was crazy fragile and would fail. And then Pioneer and them never having the parts to replace it. And even if they could get the parts, the... The arcade operators weren't going to go in and it's like nowadays who goes in and repairs bits inside their DVD player. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, it just wasn't a great tech. I think it was a bad choice. Well, it's interesting that you should mention the unreliability of, of the Laserdisc games because I, I think they realized it at the point at, by the time this came out because there's actually a setting 
on the cabinet where the operator can turn off the LaserDisc so that you can continue to play the game and save the wear and tear on the LaserDisc system. The game is completely playable without that music and without the background images. It's terrible. I tried it and it's no fun at all, but you can play it. And uh, but at least unlike a lot of these games, then the operator who's, if the LaserDisc breaks, doesn't have to have three weeks of no game available to make money. You right. just turn off that element. So that, that was good thinking. Yeah, there is that. But on the other hand, who's going to play this game without those? Visuals? Yeah, the backgrounds are the whole thing. If any case, you might as well instead turn off the game and say, just give me 15 minutes looking at this psychedelic tunnel. <laughs> or just play Buck Rogers because that's what this is without mm. those. <laughs> no, it's better than Buck Rogers. It is. It is. Yeah, I, I agree. Mostly I agree. because that control. This has just I found bang on control with the trackball. I don't know if it was just my trackball happened to be set up perfectly for it or something, but unlike a lot of games, unlike say bubbles, let's pick on bubbles again. Cause why not? <laughs> There's no skating here. Like when you, you're almost like you're moving your ship as if it was a, an aimer. It kind of has the same, the same one-to-one control that something like missile command would have where you have no difficulty skating your targeter around the, the screen and be able to stop it exactly where you want and move it in small amounts or large amounts. And I found it was that exact same control for your ship here with the trackball, which is fantastic. If you're going down a tunnel and having to shoot things and dodge stuff, you want something even more accurate than just a joystick. I found it was the perfect controller for the game. Yeah, I agree. I had no problems with control at all. It felt very natural. Normally you would assume that you would play a space shooter with a joystick. The trackball in this case felt perfect. Now, reading about this, a lot of people say that this is the second arcade game to feature polygons, solid-filled polygons, that it comes after iRobot. But it seems that it actually was released before iRobot. So I don't understand why everyone agrees that iRobot is first. So maybe iRobot was premiered first I, or something it's it's kind of strange that's exactly what it is i don't have the article in front of me but somebody somebody wrote about that irobot appeared at a trade show several months before it was generally released and before cube quest but cube quest was in the arcades first aha i was because i was looking at the dates thinking i don't understand why this is at number one but everyone seems very clear that it's number two so okay then that makes sense I was wondering if it was just a fame thing or something. One thing I, th this game does have a claim to fame for, though, is as far as I can tell, it was the first Laserdisc game to be emulated in MAME. Yes, and it was a big deal when it came out because everybody wanted to play it. And then they realized that the CHD file required was 10 gigabytes. Which adds which a lot. Adds quite a bit. Even uh, That was several years ago, and, and even now, that's, that's kind of a big download. Just for the one game, because... So I think this Laserdisc capability came into MAME with version 0.127. And I guess 0.126 then would have been still really big. Like if you had all the games, there probably was, I don't know, 10 or 20 DVDs. But then when they start to say, okay, for every game we add, it's going to be another 10 to 20 gigabytes <laughs> for these Laserdisc <laughs> games. It's adding a significant amount of data just for, you know, an insignificant number of games. Still worth having, though. I still like it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I love it a lot. I'm, I'm, really... I'm, yeah, I'm glad I spent the time to download it. And if, if you're into this sort of game, I definitely re recommend checking it out. So another thing that's weird about this game is there's a naked girl in it. So there's the Cube Quest girl. Now, she's not... Well, I, she's kind of naked. She's kind of topless, but they're not really showing anything. It's this big thing on the net. People talk about how there's a hidden naked girl in the game. I was reading another interview with the designer, and he's saying, well, it's not really... A hidden thing. He says it's pretty easy to trigger and it's part of the test section of the Laserdisc. So he says, yes, she's as topless as anything you would see in a PG-13 film. The technical reason it was put there was to give a face tone 
for doing color because it's just this image basically girl stands up and she's got like billions of hair hair just goes all over the place it's the 80s and he says i think it may have been a standard one from kodak as well and he has no idea who the woman is or where the shot came from but it was just 100 percent there to do a test debug mode and make sure your your color rendering is correct for face tones on laser discs and it was just the color guys or whatever put it in to have a bit of fun and since she's just accessible in test mode that is not really something that one would consider hidden people just sort of got all goofy about it because it seemed like there was a hidden naked girl but it's not really part of the gameplay that was sort of one, one of the big mysteries of the game but it turns out to be nothing like pompatus <laughs> cube quest featured wow a bunch of chips here so we've got the main cpu is a, a motorola 68000 at 8 megahertz a rotate cpu at 5 megahertz a line cpu at 5 megahertz a sound cpu at 5 megahertz in addition to the laser disc itself which was i'm going to guess Pioneer. It was a Magnavox oh. AC8010. There's only, I think, the three. One. So out of one third chance. <laughs> and speaking of the, the LaserDisc player itself, in addition to the, to the CHDs, you'll, you'll need to make sure that the ROM has the Magnavox file uh, so that it, will, that it will play the LaserDisc in the background and the game won't load. There's a, another ROM out there called Simutrek.zip that you can actually get that has all that, and you can just stick that in your ROMs folder if you don't want to. If you don't want to open up your existing zip files and add ROMs, because that might screw up your CLR MAME or whatever you use to, to maintain your, your ROMs. I think you should just go out and buy the cabinet. Or you could do that too. Don't mess around with this MAME stuff. I've heard that that's kind of hard to get a hold of, Carrington. <laughs> it is very, very rare. Most of, I think like, I don't know, two people have them or something. <laughs> They're It's a crazy good looking cabinet. Like this is something where it would be worth having the cabinet. I, I, I got to try to track one of these down. I don't know if they have them down at fun spot or something but i would love to see this so i'm gonna try to describe the cabinet to you so it's a big cabinet about normal sort of height but it, it kind of feels like it's leaning forward because the sides of it, it's a black or dark blue cabinet but it's got this bright red sort of stripe on the sides and the sides angle toward you kind of like tempest in reverse sort of thing it's almost leaning out at you and it bright red so it's like a looming cabinet and it's kind of an environmental cabinet it's not really like a big discs of tron where you get inside it but the full cabinet has the full stand-up cab in front of you and i'll talk about the control panel in a second and also behind you another kind of matching wall that has an adjustable seat in it if you get the full cabinet you're supposed to have that so you put your feet on either side of the cabinet in front of you and you lean back and sit on a seat and it can be positioned either just as a, a leaning post or as a as a stool height seat that you can sit on it's supposed to be a remarkably comfortable cabinet it's very rare for people to get that whole set though the back isn't necessary and those often got abandoned or were in their way so usually if you can come across one of these things and don't mind spending probably a couple thousand dollars unless you get super lucky you'll only get the front part of it it's also incredibly rare to ever find these in working condition which is of course the the case with most laser disc games anyway control panel is really cool on it it's not a lot of graphics in this game this game for a game that has incredible artwork in the game itself, like mind-blowing snake tunnel artwork. <laughs> snake tunnels, man, messed me up. Um, <laughs> the control panel itself is just plain, has the trackball, the amazingly perfect trackball, perfect control for this game in the center, two buttons for fire on either side, so you can be a lefty or ready to do firing, and a diamond-shaped button, a big yellow glowing diamond-shaped button in the top above the trackball, which is your rotate button. Now, diamond shape makes it sound fancy, but really it's just a standard square button and they just put it on a 45-degree angle, but still kind of makes it cool. They're doing something a little different. It's rotated like the cube. So it's a 
big cabinet and it's got a very unique shape. And because it leans forward, and it's got that bright red stripe around the side and the, and the very dark control panel with just a few glowing bits all to draw your eye sort of into that black cavern in the middle of it where the incredible psychedelic tunnels are sort of rushing out at you. I suspect that this is a game that is greatly enhanced by playing it on the actual cabinet. And that's something I'd really, really like to try. And probably will never happen. No, there's a great article online of, of somebody who came across one, who found, kind of luckily, found two Cosmic Chasms and a Cube Quest. But it's incredibly rare and incredibly expensive to find. According to the notes on the Dragon, Dragon's Lair Project, which is a site dedicated to tracking Laserdisc games, they mentioned that the game did not use a standard Laserdisc player. So even if you found one of these Magnavoxes, it's been modified. They ended up making their own controller for it and install it inside the player. So each Laserdisc was customized for each game. Oh my goodness. This allowed them to disable the audio and visual squash controls and have in instant access to variable forward and reverse playback so that when you play the game, the Laserdisc playback varied greatly and enabled in a, a less linear view of the content and says it enabled interesting effects. For example, during the game, the video plays forward and then backwards about half the amount of frames played forward in a surging type of way with audio. And so you get a very interesting uh, visual effect from that. You certainly do. One thing about this game, more than probably any we've played, the visuals are striking. Absolutely. That's, that's, yeah, you won't, you probably won't remember much about the gameplay, but you certainly will remember the trip that it sent you on. It wasn't awful gameplay though. No, no, like, this all. isn't like a bad game. Just it's memorable. just sort of an unfinished game, which is too bad because it lets down the rest of it. It's an amazing cabinet with this great visual effects that were designed in the Laserdisc player. Really cool and interesting cutting edge hardware. And it's almost too bad they weren't given that extra six months to just work on gameplay because this could have been a real classic. And maybe I would have been better at it. <laughs> yeah, there were two modes of, of gameplay. There's beginner mode, or I think it's called maybe easy mode, and advanced. And I found beginner mode to be way too easy. And advanced mode, I died almost immediately. It was, it was far too difficult. For me, that was the one complaint I had about the game, is there's no, there was no real balance in there. I was either dying immediately or just playing and playing and playing. I uh, will agree that on hard mode, I died immediately. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I didn't find the easier mode so easy I could just play forever. Mr. Quest, <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Dr. Cube, or whatever I got to call you now. All right. Clearly, you're better at this than I am. I don't know, because sometimes gameplay doesn't change that much. Like, you're just, okay, I'm going into yet another tunnel. Right. But there would be certain tunnels that were so distracting, <laughs> I would just run into stuff because I'd be like, you're suddenly you're going down a tunnel. I'm like, is that... Is that supposed to be carpet? And what's that? Oh, I'm dead again. Or here come the snakes. Or here come the weird gears that are rotating <laughs> walls of metallic gears. How do you not look away? I kept looking away from the gameplay and staring at the walls. Or, or the time where you sort of dive down through a jungle. It's, mm -hmm. it's completely psychedelic. And I found it remarkably distracting. Yeah, I did have trouble at first trying to determine what was going to kill me and what was background. And so that was difficult. But once I figured it out, I the actual... The enemy shooting at you, the AI, wasn't very good in beginner mode. And this will, of course, be my excuse this week. I forgot to write my score down. It's on the computer that's off right now so that we can record this. So I'll, I'll have that up here shortly after we're done. But I was able to consistently get to about, I'd say, tube or, or corridor 52, 53 on easy mode. No problem. I, I did make it to the final uh, boss several times and died quickly. But Okay, you're way better than me. My high score was 67, 420. Oh, Carrington. And I wasn't nearly getting to like Tunnel 52 or anything. <laughs> so whatever your score is, definitely going to be better than mine. I did have a couple of zeros after that, yeah. Uh, 
I, I found it kind of frustrating when you're on the screen where you select which quarter you're going to go down next. You have a timer and it's like, I think it's like seven or eight seconds. And that to me never seemed like enough time. I was always spinning the cube around and trying to determine where I wanted to go next. And I would panic and hit the button and ended up sometimes in the wrong uh, wrong corridor, but really it didn't matter because like, you know, it doesn't matter whether the snake is shooting at you or the gear, it's kind of the same thing. And it is fairly repetitive, like you're saying. So I'm going to give it a thumbs up because it's definitely worth playing. It's interesting. It's very different than any game we've reviewed so far, but I do feel that, well, the elements that are there feel very polished and wonderful. The actual overall game is unfinished and therefore unpolished. It needs more there, there, you know? Totally agree. Absolutely. Yeah. So what about next week? Could we do better? Oh, wait, there's more, fortunately. Well, fortunately, Paul managed to save the ROM images when Simutrek was going out of business. I guess he showed up one day and kind of grabbed some stuff. Uh, and he donated those to Dragon's Lair Project, so that's out there. And he says that he has the original masters of all the visual effects. And so that's why we're able to play this now in MAME instead of going, hey, remember that game that nobody heard of or one person thought he saw? Is this Polybius? What's the deal with Cube Quest? So, <laughs> Well done, him. So that was pretty awesome. Fight the man. Although, I guess for this game, he technically was the man. I think so, yeah. It's a little man-on-man -man action. All right, let's move on to next week's game without comment. <laughs> What's it sound like? What's it sound like? <laughs> Here you go. All right, so I think that brings us to the end of another No Quarter podcast. That makes me sad. But then we get to go play more games. That makes me less sad. Yay. <laughs> the sad meter is not quite in the red anymore. The sedometer. We'll see everybody next week. Sounds good. Bye. You've been listening to No Quarter, the classic arcade podcast. Feedback can be sent by email to noquarter at monsterfeet.com, or you can find us on Facebook as No Quarter Podcast, and on Twitter we are at No Quarter Show. All of those links plus the show notes are available at monsterfeet.com, and like all Monster Feet podcasts, the original material in this episode has been released to the public domain.